Hi there, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Smashing the Ceiling with me, Naomi Meller. On this podcast, we love to showcase the lives of women who have achieved amazing things in their careers, those who have got a really cool or unusual job, and some who have just had a really interesting life. Each week, I sit down with one woman to dig a little deeper into the how of it all. How did they get where they are? How did they pick themselves up when things didn't go right? And how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. I love the variety of women that I get to meet on this podcast. And this week's guest definitely falls into the category of trailblazer. In the early 1980s, there were very few women in the FBI and even fewer women of colour. But Jerry Williams became a special agent at the Federal Bureau of Investigation at the age of just 25 and went on to serve there for 26 years. After moving through investigations into robbery and drug violations, Jerry spent the majority of her working life on major economic fraud, chasing con artists and corrupt corporate and public officials. She certainly has a few stories to tell. What most of us know about the FBI is probably derived from television or the movies, and let's face it, probably isn't that accurate. Having realised this, since retiring, Jerry has now gone on to use her insider knowledge to write true crime fiction that is actually true and based on how things would really happen in the field. Her accompanying podcast, FBI Retired Case File Review, features interviews with former FBI agents where they discuss cool and interesting cases they worked and how they solved significant and difficult crimes. I'll put the links on the show page if you want to check it out, and I would definitely recommend it. Jerry opened our conversation by telling me that she had had some exciting news that morning. This morning I woke up and I had one grandchild and oh, now I have goodness. two grandchildren. That's so exciting. <laughs> Congratulations. Why why thank you. Have is it uh, a boy or a girl? It's a girl. So now I have both a boy and a girl. My oh. son lives out in Washington state, so unfortunately I'm uh, nearly a thousand uh, three thousand miles away. Oh my goodness. But um and does she have a name? Yeah, Wendy Odessa. And Wendy I know that's Odessa. a mouthful, but <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm real excited. It's Aww. it's been an exciting day. So super, <laughs> massive congratulations to Jerry on becoming a grandmother for the second time. Grandmothers are to be celebrated, as I truly believe the lasting inspiration they can have on young women is really underrated. The advice your grandmother gives you, the wisdom and counsel she can offer, is a special thing. If you're lucky enough to have experienced that, you'll know what I mean. I've spoken about my grandmother, G, before. She's 102 now and still brings us great joy and hilarity. So, Jerry, enjoy all your grandchildren and congratulations again. We then kicked on with the interview. So I was just going to start by asking you um, a little bit about where you grew up and about your kind of early life, Jerry, and what you thought you might have wanted to be when you grew up when you were a kid. Like, was the FBI always on your radar or is that something that came to you a little bit later? Uh, it was never on my radar. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> never on my radar. So I had a really fascinating uh, you know, childhood. My father was in the Air Force, and he had an assignment that took him all around the world, and he dragged us along with him. Cool. So, you know, from, yeah, from the very beginning, I was born in, in Washington, D.C., and then we went to Morocco. So I was a tiny little baby living in, wow. in Casablanca, uh, 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 Morocco. Then we went to France. So we lived there for two years. 
Then we went to Massachusetts. I lived there for a couple of years. Then we went to uh, to the UK. Oh my goodness! Um, did you? Yeah, no way. <laughs> yeah, for three <laughs> years. So there's pictures um, of me, uh, but you know I don't remember a lot. But I had a lot of Beatle memorabilia. I wish I had kept that. It would have been probably worth something. <laughs> oh my gosh! It could have now. been worth loads. Yeah. Oh yes, I had lots of stuff. <laughs> Uh, and then from there, we, we went back, we went to Maine. I lived in, uh, in, in the state of Maine at Loring Air Force Base in Maine. Then we lived in Germany for three years, and I remember that really well. And then we lived in Washington State in, Poca- in Spokane for a few years. And then my father started to you know, wind it down. He was going to retire. He's from Virginia. So his last duty station was in Virginia in Hampton, Virginia. There's an Air Force base there, and we uh, uh, he retired there, and so I went to high school for a few years there, and then I left. So I've been, you know, traveling <laughs> and moving around all of my life, and I ended up in Philadelphia because of the FBI. Okay, you must be really good at making new friends, Jerry. I have to be, yeah. <laughs> That's one skill that I adapted. Yeah, uh, you know, that I, I learned how to be able to talk to just about anyone. And that, of course, is a skill that served me well in the <laughs> FBI. No, no, not at all. Mm, mm. So you said the FBI wasn't on your radar when you were a kid. Yeah, so when I How went to college, I majored in psychology, and, and, and I had always do, like, thought that I wanted to be a psychiatrist, actually going to medical school. So in college, I took all of those courses. I took oh, cool. the you know chemistry, the organic chemistry, the physics, you know, all of that stuff. I uh, didn't have to, but I took it. You know, um, even though I was a psychology major, I kind of made my own pre-med you know, curriculum. And so I I took all of those courses and except for I could not get through the second semester of physics. And so I decided, yeah, so I decided I would wait and, you know, take it after I graduated. And that was even worse. (laughs) You know, I, 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 you know, working and then trying to take the second uh, half of physics when you don't have to, you know, to, to graduate uh, was very difficult. So my whole medical career as a psychiatrist blew up uh, because of physics. You know, so my initial my initial career was a failure. Jerry may consider this a failure to launch with her first intended career, but it's funny how things work out for a reason in the end. You may have moments in your life where things just don't happen for you, even though you desperately want them to. You may fail an exam or not get the job that you really want, or a relationship may end unexpectedly and in a heartbreaking fashion. But every time a door closes, a window opens somewhere else. I should have taken it earlier. If I had taken it earlier, I would have been fine. But by the time I took it, even in college, again, it was not part, I didn't have to take it to graduate. So that that whole, I have to do it, I have to buckle down, just wasn't there. And I, I just wasn't motivated, I guess. And now I'm and now I'm glad. You know, I don't think I would have enjoyed being a medical doctor. I mean, it's a wonderful profession, but I realize now that that probably wasn't for me. For some reason, you know, somewhere, somewhere up there in in, in the sky, uh, knew that there was something better for me, and uh, I found it. In a strange twist of fate, Jerry is the second guest in a row that wanted to be a doctor. 
more specifically a psychiatrist in fact. Like Sarah Swan from two weeks ago, she also realised that it wasn't for her. Sometimes it takes a failure or a setback or even just experience to realise that a career you thought was an aspiration for you isn't actually right in your life for whatever reason. And that's okay. There are plenty of other options out there for you. Jerry then told me how she rerouted and got into the FBI. In the FBI, for most people who join, it's really a second career opportunity. Most people don't really know this, but the average agent who joins the FBI is 30 years old. Wow. So they've already, yeah, so they've already worked someplace else. It's the best way for the FBI to make sure that you are, you know, that you're going to be able to do the job is to look at what you've already done. Hmm. Uh, I, w- I was still kind of young when I came in. I was 25, but I had worked as a juvenile probation officer for three years, and I definitely used my psychology there. My actual job title was aftercare counselor. And what I would do is I had the kids on my caseload who were sent away to reform school or, you know, correctional facilities. And I worked with them as they started to be ready to come back into the community. You know, so I worked with them, you know, used therapy with them and their, and their family in order to, like I said, to, to, to make them, uh, their ease back into the community a little bit better, helping them find jobs or go back to school, things like that. And I did that for three years. And then I saw this newsletter that said that the FBI was looking for women and minorities. And you had to, re- you had to remember this was, oh, wow, this was 30, 35 years ago at 1982. And um, not many women and definitely not many black women, I would imagine. Oh no, I was I can tell you I was the twenty-third black female to join the FBI. Wow. When I when I joined back then. Um and there nationwide, were nationwide, that is. I nationwide. Presume. Yeah, wow. Right. Okay. And, and totally for the whole FBI, there was about five point eight percent of the agents in the FBI when I joined were females. So Crikey. That just seems like a different age, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, it was. It was a different age. And so I saw this newsletter and they, you know, they were looking for women and minorities. And I was like, check and check. So <laughs> it wasn't that far off, you know, the possibilities because my roommate in college, who is my best friend to this day, was after she graduated from college, she joined the uh, Baltimore Police Department as a police officer. And so that idea of going into law enforcement wasn't really foreign to me. I hadn't really thought of it for myself. But when the FBI, you know, became a possibility, it was something that I could really look at and say, yeah, I could do this. And plus, coming from a military background, having been, you know, in in that kind of atmosphere, it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't far off either. And the funny thing is that my roommate who's my best friend now, later joined the FBI after I did. Oh, no way. Okay. That's cool to have one of your friends in there in there as well with you. Um, one thing I was just going to ask you quickly, Jerry, was, so in the UK, we have the police force, then we have the secret intelligence services, so MI5, MI6. Can you just explain to me quickly what the distinction between the police force and the FBI is in America? Yes. All right. The one thing that I can tell you is that there is no real hierarchy 
although it, people like to make it look like there is. The, the FBI you know, can't rule over a local police department, and the local police department is not subordinate to the FBI. But, of course, the FBI has more, I guess, uh, powerful laws that go from multi-state or interstate that gives us a little bit more, uh, God, I hate to use the word power, but it, it just increases our ability to get things done that a local or a state department can't. They just can't. They, you know, If you're a police officer in Baltimore and you have a lead or an investigation that, that you, know, you want to cover in, you know, in El Paso, Texas, you just can't fly to El Paso, El Paso Texas and just do that investigation. You, know, you don't have the jurisdiction. You, you, you don't have you know, the ability to cross state lines and, and take, you know, to just begin an investigation. But the FBI can. We can go all over the country, all over the United States. And we have some understandings with many countries where we can go all over the world. And so that's the distinction. That is what gives us the, uh, oh, I, I, I wish I had thought about what that word would be, but the, the extra abilities that a, that a local or a state police department don't have. Do the police forces call you in if they need more help for big cases or do you, would you normally get cases assigned to you at, at the very beginning or how does, how does that work? Like how does your work come to you in the FBI normally? Yeah, so it would come the same way it comes to any type of law enforcement agency. So we have our own cases that come under the FBI's jurisdiction. And a lot of those have to do with, you know, some sometimes it's as simple as a dollar figure. You know, if a case comes in and it's, a, you know, a few hundred or a few thousand dollars, the FBI, FBI is probably not going to take that case because we just don't have the type of manpower to deal with something like that. But if it is a, you know, multi-million, billion, billion dollar case, then the FBI probably will, you know, begin to, to look into that investigation. You know, you've alluded to large sums of money and you were specializing in economic crime and fraud. Was that an area that you uh, had been in for your whole career or did you get into that at a later date? It sounds uh, super interesting, like, Essentially, you're looking for people who have been committing million and billion dollar frauds, like you say, which I would imagine requires a significant amount of detective work because these people are probably quite clever about how they hide funds is would be the layman's interpretation of things, Jerry. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. It really is. They they definitely think they're clever. They think they're the smartest person in the room. And, and so it, it was always a challenge to work those type of cases, which I kind of fell into. You know, when I was a, a brand new agent, I initially was assigned to work bank robberies, which a lot of new agents are, because they're quick and easy type of cases that really get you out into the fields that you learn the city where you're you're assigned and so I enjoyed those but when I went to my very first real assignment it was in Sacramento California and they assigned me to government fraud there wow I wasn't there yeah I wasn't there long enough I was only there for about a year and a half before I got transferred to Philadelphia but that already started fraud so when I got it when I got to Philadelphia, they put me on the uh, on a government fraud squad again, 
And then later on, I moved to the economic crime squad. And uh, yeah, I just stayed with it. If I, I, if I had my dream violation, I would have worked public corruption, which is where you go after you know, the public officials and mayors and congressmen and oh you know people, yeah, elected elected officials. Uh, but what I did was exactly the same. We used the same type of uh, charges and and laws to 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 charge the individuals, but my subjects were in business. There were, you know, corporations and individuals working in business and not elected officials, but it was still the same type of fraud and still type uh, the same type of corruption and bribery cases that I worked, uh, you know, on my squad. So we were like sister squads, but uh, boy, I would have loved to have, you know, gone after a few elected officials too. And did you do any undercover work as part of your investigations, Jerry? Well, we all do, but you know, nothing, nothing serious. Usually, you know, I ended up being the, you know, the arm piece of the girlfriend of somebody who was working, uh, uh, undercover. Um, and that was my choice. I didn't, you know, I didn't sign up. You had to really sign up to become an undercover agent. You had to go through the training. They had to assess you and evaluate you to make sure that you can do it. So the little things that I did didn't require all of that. But if there was maybe a, a guy that was undercover and maybe the bad guy he was dealing with was always trying to set him up with, you know, prostitutes or something, then, you know, all of a sudden I'd show up and, you know, I'd be the girlfriend and, you know, something like that. And, and I'd go out with him to a club or to a boxing match or something like that. So, you know, that's, I was, I was just arm candy, mm. you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> extremely intelligent arm candy, Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> with with eyes everywhere, I'm sure. It sounds yes. so cool. I mean, um, one of the things I can't wait to talk to you about is your books, Jerry, and particularly the latest one that you've got coming out in June this year, which is about FBI myths. And uh, I mean, as somebody who has no knowledge of the FBI whatsoever, apart from what you glean from the movies or from TV, um, which I'm sure is horribly inaccurate, probably, Um I can't, I'm really excited to read your book and, and see what's in it. Can you give us a flavor about but how that came about and, and what the, the book is about? Well, I love crime fiction. I've always read crime fiction, but I've never really read a lot of books that had the, that featured the FBI because so much of it was just wrong, you know? So, you know, I would read uh, Michael Connolly or, um, Oh, of course, now my mind is going blank. But you know, I would I would read those type of books, but usually they didn't have an FBI agent in it. And when when I knew that, I always knew I wanted to write a book, and so I figured I'm going to write a book and do my best to have it as accurate as possible. Now, of course, you know, it's all about story, so you got to make sure that you have, you know, something exciting going on because you know that's what people want to read, and and so sometimes you have to take a little creative license, but at least the interactions and the different violations and how you go about an an, an investigation would be authentic, uh, and, and so as I was writing my books and as I was talking to different agents on the podcast, which I guess we'll also talk about, uh, we kept saying things like, yeah, well, that's not how it is on TV and, and, <laughs> and make, making little jokes. And so I started gathering 
all of the cliches and misconceptions that we talked about, and I put them together in a list, and I did two different podcast episodes, special episodes, my 50th and my 100th episodes, you know, about these mis and misconceptions. And then one day it hit me, you know, this is a book. <laughs> I should write a book about this. And, and so that's what's coming out in June, or at least I hope it comes out in June, because uh, the book is with FBI headquarters. Every book that you write about the FBI as a FBI employee or, or former employee has to be reviewed. No way. By, wow. Yes. Yeah. Even my, even my fiction, my crime fiction, I had to send it in to headquarters. This one, of course, is, is full of facts and information. And, you know, so it's being reviewed. It's at headquarters now. I'm hoping that it will take them, you know, 60 days, you know, at the most in order to look through everything and, and make sure that I'm not giving any sensitive information away. And, and then I'll be able to get that out, uh, you know, at some time, uh, you know, in, in June. I'm, I'm real excited about it. I'm, you know, I'm really proud uh, the, of, of the book. I, I think that it's going to be very helpful for anybody who reads, writes, or watches crime dramas, FBI crime dramas. And I think it will even be great for anybody who's just thinking maybe one day they might want to join the FBI. Yeah, sure. And can you give us one or two examples of like the biggest common misconceptions, Jerry? Oh, yeah. Well, the, the, the easiest one and the one that uh, I think most agents will automatically go to is that FBI profilers are out chasing serial killers. And, you know, there's so many, it's it, the serial killer, uh, the serial killer concept is, is really a, a genre of itself. You know, there's, yeah, there's a whole genre of books of, of, of authors and, you know, TV writers and movie producers who just do things on serial killers and FBI profilers. But the truth is that FBI profilers are more like, um, researchers, you know, when there is an unsolved case, whether it's an FBI case or a case from a local or state law enforcement agency, they can package that information up, send it to the behavioral analysis unit at FBI Academy and have a profiler go through the, all of those records looking for things that will help identify who could have done this crime, you know, what could have been involved in it. You know, what is that person, what kind of background would a person who would have done this type of thing, you know, have? And they pull all of that together and they come up with a profile and then they ship it back to the investigators. They're not actively involved. But every show or book that you read, you know, that shows an FBI profiler, you know, they're chasing the, the serial killer <laughs> down some dark alley. So you know, that, that's one of the biggest concepts. And I have another if you have time. Yeah, sure. Yeah, go for it. I love these. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the, the next one, and this is, those were my, that was my number one. The number two is that the FBI doesn't play well with others. Okay. You know, it is, it is so far from the, you know, from, from the truth. Yeah. I mean, you you'll always see, see them being like pitted against the police or pitted against the CIA yeah, or whatever, you know. Yeah. Walking into, you know, a situation, uh, FBI is here, we're in charge. And the truth is that the FBI has established the task force concept for years. I mean, there were task forces in the FBI when I came in where we 
work together with our law enforcement partners. So when you have a task force with the FBI, it's usually led by the FBI, the local police officers, the, the state police officers, they actually work in the FBI space hand in hand as partners. You know, we deputize them and so they can use our uh, record system. They can check our files. They can drive our cars. We pay for their overtime. They're, every FBI office has walking through and up and down the halls all kinds of, you know, police officers and state troopers and warrant officers, you know, because we believe that pulling our resources and our manpower together, you know, helps us all, you know, accomplish so much more. And so, you, there's hardly a case that we can work that we don't at some point work with or, you know, in cooperation with other law enforcement agencies. Jerry and I then harked back to when she joined the FBI in the early days. As we mentioned earlier, there were very few women and even fewer women of color. From listening to and now interviewing women who have broken new ground in their field as a woman and forged a path for others, it strikes me that there's a strong dichotomy between those who experienced significant overt discrimination and those who report that they never did and that they were just treated as one of the boys, so to speak. I asked Jerry about her experiences and whether she was easily accepted as a member of the team. No, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> yeah. But even in 1982, you know, it sounds like, oh, it was 10 years since the very first women joined the FBI. But even in 1982, you know, there were there were still people making that adjustment who weren't used to having women around. And I would say my first four years uh, were, you know, not great. <laughs> they weren't horrible, but there was always something or someone that was, you know, reminding me that, you know, I was a woman and a woman of color. And, you know, there were times and yeah, you know, I really felt that I had to speak up and, and just really say, I'm not, I'm not taking this. And of course that can create its own issues and problems. Uh, and, and, but I did that and I did it for, you know, like I said, the first four years. And then I got the most wonderful mentor, uh, the special agent in charge, he is the head of the whole office. So for all of Philadelphia and all of the satellite offices that surround Philadelphia, you uh, there is one special agent in charge. And he was a, a black male. He was actually like the third black male hired as an agent by the FBI back in the 1960s. Well, he just happened to be the head of the office, uh, the Philadelphia office at the time. I was in for about four years. My career was not great. You know, it was, I was doing okay, but just always seemed that I, I wasn't as successful. I wasn't getting the cases that I wanted. I wasn't getting the, um, I, you know, I, I just didn't feel, and we'll, I'll get into why that was, but uh, I, I just, didn't feel that I was the rock star that I knew deep inside I was, you know, but no one else could see that. But um, at the time, again, the FBI is always trying to diversify. The FBI recognizes that the agency should reflect 
the community it serves, but we're, we've always had issues and problems getting enough women and minorities to join the FBI. And so he came to me, you know, with four years in and, you know, really not feeling, you know, like, um, you know, I was, you know, being the be- doing the best work that I could do. And he wanted me to come off of investigations to head up the agent hiring program. Okay. And I, th- and I thought to myself, why me? I mean, there were agents, male agents in the, in the office who had been, you know, agents for, you know, 15, 20 years and, and, and they wanted to do it. And here he is coming to me with four years in, you know, that really didn't have a lot of arrest and convictions, you know, to, to, you know, to show for the time that I had been in and, and he wanted me to do it because I was a, you know, an, an African American female and, and I, he thought, you know what, no, you know, I know the way that you handle yourself. I know the way that you communicate well, the way that you're able to talk to people. And I think you are the right person to go out into the community and to let people know that the FBI is serious about hiring more women and minorities. And so I actually did that for three years. Wow. And I kicked ass. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I really did. I'm not, I'm, you know, the, the truth is I, I, my numbers were just as good as our New York office, which of course is the largest office in the FBI. Um, but, you know, I was able to really recruit people to let them know the, you know, the, what the value of being an FBI agent and the value that you could bring to being an, an FBI agent. And the funny thing is that during that three-year period when I was out recruiting others, you know who I recruited? I recruited me. Yeah, I really did. Because, again, the, the first four years, I think I had let what people were saying or thinking or treating me get in my head. And probably there was a little bit of me saying, you know, the average agent is a white male who's over 30 years old. And here you are, this 25 year old black female coming in. What are you doing here? So I had let that kind of talk get into my head. You know, I knew that some of the guys were thinking, you know, as a 25-year-old black, you know, female, that I had actually taken some guy's job, you know, some guy who had a, a, a wife and a family to support, and uh, I had taken their job. And- it's very pervasive, that sort of attitude, isn't it? And and actually, when it when you get into the self-doubt and the imposter syndrome creeps in, it's sometimes it's quite hard to shift that. Right. And the thing is, I can tell you, I didn't know that I had it, but (laughs) imposter syndrome is exactly what was going on those first four years. You know, I looked around and and I, I thought everybody else was doing better than I was. And, you know, that, you know, my training agent wasn't giving me the opportunities. Nobody was, you know, running out of the office and saying, hey, Jerry, come with us. You know, those things were true. But that didn't mean that I couldn't have found my own way uh, and, and and that I didn't need to use those as crutches or, or, or you know, problems uh, that couldn't be solved. But during the three years, as I, you know, talked to the different people 
who were interested in coming into the FBI. I also was assigning other agents throughout the division to meet with these individuals to conduct their panel interviews. And I sat in on many of those interviews. So I got to know more and more agents in the office. And, you know, as I listened to their stories, as I told, you know, different stories and repeated those at recruiting events, I just really realized that there was so much about the FBI that I loved. There was so much about the FBI that, you know, was, you know, just, just unbelievable as far as, you know, what it does for the country, you know, as far as keeping Americans safe, that I started to, that's the message that took over. That's the, that's the language that I started to hear. And I wanted to be a part of that. And so after three years, I, I went to the SAC. It's a, a brand new person now. And I said, okay, my time's up. You know, I've been in the FBI for almost seven years. I want to start, you know, collecting arrests. I want to start collecting convictions. You know, I want to start doing searches. And, uh, you know, making I want to your get, mark, really. Yeah, I want to get back to that. And I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm going to say it again. I kicked ass. (laughs) (laughs) But it's amazing how a change in your mindset and a building of your confidence just leads your performance to go through the roof by the sounds of things. You know, it's incredible how somebody showing faith and confidence in you allows you to improve yourself in such a big way. I think we all need that. We all need, you know, a mentor. We all all need someone to say, "Yeah, I see you, girl. I, you know, I see what you're doing over there," and to appreciate the work that you do. And and I'll be honest with you, I did not get that initially. You know, I was an anon. Uh, let me say the word. I was an anomaly. You know, in the office, yeah, uh, and most of the offices I was in, you know, I was the only in, in Sacramento. I wasn't just the only black female agent. I was the only black employee. You know, somebody who makes a comment here or there or, you know, says something that makes you uncomfortable. There's really no one to turn to to say, you know, tell that guy, you know. Yeah. Shut up. Shut up. Yeah. (laughs) And actually, you need somebody behind you sometimes, you know, you just need somebody watching your back who, you know, when you're not there or whatever it may be, will will help you and stick up for you. And actually, if you are the only woman or the only minority in a situation, that can be very, very hard sometimes, can't it? Right. And I can tell you that I did stand up for myself, but then I was the person that had, you know, uh, you know, issues. You know, I was my problem. Oh, don't be so sensitive, you know. Mm, so, uh, you know, yeah, <laughs> you know, so, so, so that came up too, but, but I, I do want to make sure that anyone listening understands that that all changed. And the only thing different was me, was my attitude. Uh, you know, I got to a point where I, you know, when I came off of that recruiting assignment and I started working cases again, that I kind of had the persona that don't even try it. <laughs> you know, don't, don't say it to her. You know, Don't, <laughs> don't mess you with know. Jerry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Amazing. And you obviously went on massively, you flourished in your career. Um, and I was reading uh, that you were representing the Philadelphia FBI to the media. Is that right? 
That's correct. Yeah. So at the end, and, and I really do think that that is definitely a full circle moment, you know, for somebody who, you know, at one time felt imposter, like an imposter that, you know, that they, you know, do you really have what it takes? And I forgot to mention, I actually had one of the leaders in the office, an assistant special agent in charge, ask me that, <laughs> you know, if, you know, he, he, he you know, actually said that, uh, you know, he sees people lining up to, to become agents to come, you know, for the, to take the agent test. And as he walks past them, he looks at every one of them and in the eye and, and, and says to himself, I wonder if that person has what it takes. And now here I'm already an agent and he looks at me and he says, and I'm looking at you right now and I'm wondering the same thing. God. So, <laughs> and you've already passed the test. Ooh, what does the test entail? Incidentally, that was one of the other questions I was going to ask you. Like, what does it take to get into the FBI, Jerry? Yeah, it, 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 to get into the FBI, the, there are several phases of testing and interviewing and background investigation the average time period is at least a year to process Crikey, through. is it? No way. Yes, a year. So, uh, you know, you come in and, and you take a, a screening test and it's pass or fail. And, and if you pass it, then you're invited to what they call a meet and greet where agents will actually sit down and talk to you and just kind of look over your resume to see, is this person, do they, do they have what it takes? You have to have at least a four-year college degree. You have to be at least 23, you know, but they'll look at you, you know, even with your basic, you know, um, requirements and, uh, and, but still say, you know, no, uh, you know, and they don't pass you and, and you don't get invited back for a real interview where you sit down with three agents and they ask you some, you know, set questions about uh, your background, your abilities, not not your personal background, but how you've handled adversity, how you've handled complications in the in, in the past, you know how you've done that, and 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 that gives them the ability to assess how you might be able to handle a similar situation in the FBI, and then if, if you pass that interview, then they begin conducting a full background investigation you know, for your potential uh, security clearance. And, you know, they're going back and they're talking to all your employees, your, your employers, your employees. They're talking to neighbors. They're talking to, you know, college professors. They're talking to, you know, your friends and associates. You know, they're, they're checking your finances. They're giving you a drug test. They're giving you a polygraph examination. And through all of these stages, they're also checking your physical fitness. They're making you, you know, run and, and do agility tests and, and do, you know, sit-ups and push-ups. And, you know, if at any point along the way you, you fail any of those, uh, you know, tests, you know, you could be out. Yeah. Gosh, it's incredibly rigorous. Sorry, I just completely interrupted you when you, we were about to talk about um, the your PR and, and media role, Jerry, because I think that is the pinnacle of what turned into a completely stellar career, really. Yeah, so it, it, it certainly did. So here's a person who, you know, wasn't even sure if they had what it takes to be an FBI agent. And at the end of my career, I was the representative, uh, you know, of what an FBI agent was for most people. I mean, when I would go on TV, you know, it, it would be my name in the paper talking about a particular case that we were involved in. 
I would be, you know, I was the the face of the FBI in Philadelphia. Now, of course, I worked for my boss, the special agent in charge. So if it was really big, then, you know, he was out there talking to the media. But I was the person who wrote his talking points and, you know, wrote up his speeches and and made sure that he covered the points that needed to be covered. So it was and I worked directly for the special agent in charge, uh, you know, putting that putting that together. So it was my role to shape the public's perception of the FBI in Philadelphia. And I did that for almost five years, you know, the, the last uh, five years of my career. Uh, it was a fantastic job. You know, I still used all of my investigative skills. I had to go around to all of the different squads and the different agents. I had to have a, a, a full understanding of, of what they were doing, you know, what was available to make public and, and to be able to package that and showcase it in a way that made the FBI look good, made my boss look good. We've talked a little about your books. You've written two fiction novels and obviously the um, the new book is coming out in June as we've discussed. Um, you also run a super interesting podcast with uh, other retired FBI agents where you talk about cases. Can you just tell me a little bit about um, how that came about, Jerry, and about your about how you kicked that podcast off and where the idea came from. I did have a, a, a literary agent at the time, and he was out there shopping the book around to publishers. And one of the things that they tell you to, to do is that during that time period, you need to start building your platform you know, to get potential readers ready you know, for your books to come out. And a lot of people at that time, it was just three years ago, it makes it sound like it's so long ago, but they were blogging, but they were, they were, they were, blogging was still a big deal about three years ago. So I thought, well, I guess I could start some type of uh, a blog using my expertise in, in the FBI. And then I thought about it. I was listening to podcasts at the time and I thought, no, it will be quote unquote easier for me to do a podcast. <laughs> so... So I and I knew that I, you know, had a lot of friends in the Philadelphia office with some exciting cases. And so I called it FBI Retired Case File Review. And basically, I would get my friends to to come on the show to talk about cases. We would review one case from the beginning to the end and give listeners a behind the scenes look at how the FBI works in investigation, which is a lot of fun because there are a lot of podcasts out there that talk about, you know, the case from a victim side or just from a general uh, journalistic side. But, you know, very few that are actually talking to the investigators and, and learning exactly how they went about finding, you know, the, the person responsible. So uh, that's what we do. And we do it every week. And I've done it for a hundred and sixty weeks, so a little it's amazing. One hundred and sixty episodes is is an incredible bank to have in to have yeah, behind you. Yeah, uh, so it's been over three years, and it's it's doing uh, it's doing pretty well. Now I have close to two point three million downloads, and you know every uh, every week I'm gaining a little bit more. Uh, you know, uh, 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 each week I'm, I'm my audience is growing and. You know, the, the cases that uh, we are talking about are, are, you know, fascinating. Some of the biggest cases in the FBI's history, as well as some of those cases that 
we've basically forgotten about. And, and it's a lot of fun. I've met so many great agents around the country that I never knew. You know, I, I never knew them before. And and now, you know, it's like, yeah, hey, it's Jerry. Oh, yeah, Jerry, I listen to your <laughs> podcast. You know, <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. And um, we've already discussed about your your wonderful mentor, who I feel we should name check Jerry. He sounds like a great guy. Wayne Davis. Wayne Davis. Okay, and cool. I interviewed him in episode, I believe it's up, I'm pretty sure it's episode 14. And he talks about uh, being one of the first African-American males to join the FBI as an agent who went through the academy. Because people will tell you, oh, yeah, there were agents before then, but they weren't allowed to go to the FBI academy. They didn't work the same cases that their white male counterparts did. And most of them also had to be Hoover's chauffeur and drive him around. I, so I don't, even though I respect their contributions, I don't, you know, see them as being, you know, some of the first agents. I see Wayne Davis and his and the colleagues that came in during his time as being the first agents. And he talks about diversity and how important that was. And he talks about meeting J. Edgar Hoover, a one-on-one -on -one private meeting with Hoover. It's fa it's fascinating, just fascinating. Yeah. This is a different era, wasn't it, really, oh, back in those days? It really was. It was a, knowing that I have that recorded interview with him is is really just thrilling as a podcaster to know that I have recorded a bit of FBI history, a significant history that otherwise would not be, you know, available for people to, to, to hear. Mm, it's amazing. It's amazing. And, um, one of the other things I, I love to discuss with people is about significant failures in their career, because I think those are often the things that make you in the end, although at the time they seem incredibly significant. Do you have any kind of significant mistakes or failures that you've had in your career, Jerry, that you've really learned from and that you look back on now and think, huh, well, that happened for a reason? <laughs> <laughs> well, to tell you the truth, there's, it's a very long story, but I had an unbelievable failure when I was, uh, you know, a brand new agent. And probably that had a lot to do with the imposter syndrome. I'm, I'm sure it did. And it was, you know, in my very first office, which was actually in Norfolk, Virginia, we did like six months in the area where we were recruited before we went out to our first assignment. And we, I was put on a surveillance, an overnight surveillance, because we had heard that a cop killer who had killed a state trooper in New England, and I'm not sure, I think it was Massachusetts, was traveling to the Tidewater, Virginia area to see his daughter. He was a fugitive. And, you know, I was put on a, you know, surveillance to, to try to find him. And this is one of those situations that I was telling you about where, as a brand new agent who had only been in the area for, you know, a few months, I was assigned to a car by myself. Mm. Who does that? Okay. You know? Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, not when you're a new agent. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, assigned to a car by myself. And I had really no idea where I was. But, you know, just we were just told to drive around a particular area. And, uh, it, 
you know, if somebody was spotted, you know, then we could, we, we would be there, you know, and I know it sounds like it could be, you know, one of the chapters in my crime novel, but I stopped to go to the bathroom at a little pizza place. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. You know, what's, you know what I'm going to say? Yeah. I, and, I think I might do Jerry. <laughs> and when I walked into the place, I saw the guy sitting at the counter. So I order a pizza, uh, order a slice of pizza as I'm, you know, basically looking, looking him over, making sure it's the guy. And it was, and the reason I know it was the guy for sure was because he had a leg injury and he walked with a cane. And so here's this guy that looks exactly like the guy that we're looking for. And what is laying right beside his side is a cane. So, you know, I know that I'm not, you know, I'm not mistaken. So I order the pizza, then I go to the bathroom. I don't have a radio. There are no cell phones back then, but, you know, I don't have a handy, you know, a handy talkie or radio with me. I, you know, it's in the car. So I go to the bathroom and I think to myself, okay, let me just get the pizza and then get to the car, get to the car radio and radio in. Now, the whole issue is I don't know where I am. I don't know the name of the street. I just left where I was to find some place to go to the bathroom. So I go out and I pay for the pizza and I drop my change. Now, anybody who is in law enforcement knows that if you're wearing a weapon on your hip, when you bend down the butt of your gun, and at the time we were carrying, we were a uh, carrying revolvers. So I had a 357 Magnum revolver on. And as I bent down to pick up my change, you can see the butt of my gun, you know, underneath my jacket. And I think I might've been giving off some vibes because he's looking at me and I can see that he sees it. So I get the pizza, you know, I get out to my car and now I know for sure it's him because who comes out right behind me? And gets into his car. I mean, he was, when I came in, he was sitting there eating some pizza. All of a sudden, I'm leaving, he's leaving too. And so I'm, I'm trying to get to my car. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm on the radio letting them know that I believe that I've spotted him. And of course, they want to know where I am. <laughs> I don't know where I am. You know, I'm I can, with the suspect, but I have no idea where I am. I'm outside a pizza place called So-and-So's but I don't even know the name of the street, uh, you know, Goodness. and the second reason I know for sure that I'm, you know, it was him is because he took out, took off like a bat out of hell. And by the time I tried to keep up with him, you know, he was going, you know, I was doing 60, 70 on a, on a little rural dirt road in Virginia and he was gone. Now, you know, I called the, you know, the agent that's in charge of the assignment, he comes to where I am and he tries to convince me that it wasn't the guy. And I know that he knew that it was. I knew that it was. That was like in the first month or two that I was an agent. I really think that that imposter syndrome that I initially felt had to do with that initial failure. It was an early failure. You know, no matter, and, and I can look back at it now and, and say, there was no way as a brand new agent, I should have been in that car by myself, you know, in an area that I didn't know, uh, or, or even, I don't think any 
agent really under those circumstances for a cop killer should have been in a car by themselves. No, but I, I guess nobody, you know, when you're on a surveillance, it's, um, you know, I don't think anything's well, maybe you do think things are going to really happen, but it's kind of, uh, you're not really expecting. Right. It's, trouble. it's, a, it's a more of a hurry up and wait. You know, we're, we're here just in case. You know, the thing is that, that you learn from situations like that, don't you? In the sense of, you know, you wouldn't do that again. You wouldn't put yourself in a position where you would be by yourself without the capacity to apprehend somebody that you were trying to find. And, you know, you kind of think, oh, well, that was a bit of a cock up, but okay, that's one uh. for the books. You and know. and later on, when I was thinking about how this agent was trying to talk to me or try to convince me that I didn't see who I saw, I realized it really had it probably really had more to do with his failure than my failure, because if he were to say that, oh, yeah, it was definitely him and, and he got away, then the fact that, you know, I was in that put into that situation and that it, it, the assignments were not done um, in under proper FBI, you know, protocol, then, you know, he might have gotten a little bit of trouble. So, And I always just throw the floor open at the end of an interview, Jerry, just to say, like, is there anything else you want to add or anything else you want to discuss or talk about? The FBI is, I, I, I have to say, because I've told you some, stories some some negative stories about about my initial experiences with the FBI those were years ago those are war stories those are stories that i hope and pray that no female FBI agent is encountering today and if you know even if she were to that that she would have you know the the proper resources and and individuals to go to, 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 you know, to, to make it stop. I have to make sure that people understand that the majority of my career, uh, despite those early rocky beginnings was absolutely fantastic there. At that point, there were very few times and situations where I felt that my gender or my race stopped me from being able to do what I wanted to do in the FBI and the fact that I ended up being you know, the spokesperson, the, the representative uh, for, for the FBI, uh, you know, proves that. One last thing I want to say is that I, that I have a saying that I like to, to tell young women, and that is, you just be so good that they can't ignore you. Out of interest, I looked up the current diversity figures for the FBI. These show that around 20% of special agents are now female. Not too bad, but work to do. But of those 20% women, less than 4% are women of colour, which means that overall, less than 1% of all agents are females of colour, which just doesn't really reflect American society in this day and age. Hopefully this will continue to improve. And clearly, as Jerry says, there are opportunities when you go out there to get them. So if you want to do something that not many other people do, go out there and try for it. Many thanks to Jerry for her time. I love her advice to be so good that you can't be ignored. This week, if you're getting out there to be noticed, do it with pride and with confidence. And if you're up to anything new and exciting, then do let me know. As ever, you can email me at smashingtheceiling at gmail.com or DM me on any social media platform you like. I do try and reply to everything that comes in. 
That's it for today. But as ever, if you've got any comments, suggestions or feedback, do drop me a line. I love to hear from you. Please subscribe if you haven't already and feel free to leave a nice review on your favorite podcast sites as it helps others to find us. More importantly, if you enjoyed it, spread the word as word of mouth is still the most powerful form of advertising. You can follow us on Twitter at Smashing Ceiling and on Instagram at Smashing The Ceiling and we'll hopefully see you next time. 